on Life. Hello, welcome to Lucas on Life. I'm Jeff Lucas and there's just six days, six shopping days until Christmas. That is, if you're crazy enough to actually go shopping on Christmas Eve. Perhaps you're one of those splendid souls. You are totally ready. You've got the tree up. The food is in. Well, how about thinking about how we as followers of Jesus might prepare for Christmas in this Advent season? Advent means coming, and during this season, Christians prepare for Jesus' coming, his coming to the earth in his incarnation, his coming to us when we invite him to take charge of our lives, and we look forward to the second Advent as well, his final second coming again. But let's face it, for some of us, we're not dreaming of a white snowy Christmas. The season is somewhat grey. For me personally, my father passed away in December, so Christmas music always brings a bit of a mixture, joy about the truth of Christ's coming, and yet sadness about the reality of my dad's passing away. In our own personal lives, circumstances can conspire to take the edge off of Christmas or rob us of joy altogether. So tonight on Lucas on Life, let's think about how we might prepare our hearts in this season, whatever circumstances that we find ourselves in. Strange things are said and done when Christmas comes around. Recently, I was served a hamburger by a deer. The management of my local fast food eatery had required their smiling staff to wear large scarlet antlers festooned with blinking fairy lights. Very nice. And for background music, they provided a track from the compilation playlist. Now, that's what I call Christmas music to go mad by. Christmas is a time for us to be together. Christmas is a time for us to love each other. So the song went. The music and the wildlife together conspired to create a warm, ambient atmosphere conducive to the season of goodwill. But then... I glanced around the restaurant for confirmation that people were indeed loving one another. A stone-faced lady and her hat-wearing husband sat silently at a corner table. There was something vaguely menacing about the way she tore tiny, carnivorous bites out of her burger, a la Hannibal Lecter. Occasional frosty glares were exchanged. Palpable tension crackled between them like static electricity. And hark! Over yonder in the other corner, another chirpy family outing unravelled as a manic infant on Duracells swirled milkshake around his head, gloriously baptising nearby tut-tutting tables in strawberry blobs. Suddenly, the gap between the image of Christmas as it's supposed to be and the reality of how it actually is yawned before me like the Grand Canyon. Is the gap part of the reason why some find the business of Christmas somewhat depressing? Marital tensions, life-draining diseases and worries about redundancy, interest rates and inflation, these are all pressures that don't take time off for Christmas, politely disappearing for the cheery season and popping back in after Boxing Day. 
the idea of a happy zone magical season can taunt us with its sheer unreality, especially if one is required to share the festivities with distant family members who irritate you into assassination fantasies before the king has barely begun his afternoon national chat. The unreality has spread to the reason for the season itself. I have a few Christmas cards where artists have daubed the traditional nativity scene in unreal colours, tarting it all up with a false, garish glory. A surreally calm Mary, who apparently chose to give birth while dressed from head to foot as a blue nun, glows with soft fluorescence, courtesy of a goldfish bowl-shaped halo. Joseph is usually absent from the scene. Perhaps he's out the back trying to straighten out a wonky coffee table he made earlier. And baby Jesus, himself adorned with a junior-sized goldfish bowl, is sitting up already and appears to be thanking the wise men for coming to his party. All rather good for one who is but 30 minutes old. Grinning cattle peer at the Holy Family from neat bales of hay that whiff of Chanel number no. 5. And there is none of that substance. The polite term is the inoffensive cow pat. Inoffensive, unless your name happens to be Pat, that is usually in abundance when cattle are around. Of course not. Even the old carol suggests a scene of blatant unreality. The cattle are lowing. The baby awakes. But little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Oh, really? Why wouldn't Jesus cry then? Perhaps he'd alert all and sundry to the fact that he needed his swaddling clothes changing with a raised hand of blessing rather than a heartfelt scream, him being the son of God and all. The irony is that Christmas is the story of the extraordinary God kissing a very ordinary world. The true splendor of the nativity is the notion of a God landing without much fanfare or fuss welcomed by a few night workers and travelling mystics. The king shows up in squalor. Like a heavenly bungee jumper, he shunned the pristine order of heaven to dive down into our sweaty, confused, fog-bound world and announced a new order of living. The message of Christmas is that we no longer need to haul ourselves heavenward by our own bootlaces, but that God comes to rescue those who whisper an invitation to him. Christmas. It's about the God who is willing to close the gap. Here's Amy Grant. And so this is Christmas, and what have you done, inquired John Lennon. Actually, quite a bit I respond through gritted teeth. For most of us, the Yuletide event ushers us into the season to be frantic, that's ironic, because the very first Christmas took place in a more pastoral, tranquil setting when an angelic big band scared the living daylights out of a herd of shepherds. Sheep-watching isn't terribly exhilarating, and those chaps weren't used to sudden supernatural sing-songs, seeing as they had the most boring job in the world. But then the night sky lit up with angelic neon, electrifying what had been just another predictable, relatively peaceful nighttime, and nothing would ever be quite the same again. But my own Christmas preparations have not been so emotionally serene or exciting. 
The tribulation began with the acquisition of our Christmas tree, which is usually portrayed in the movies as a joyous family event when a group of smiling souls, usually adorned in ridiculous snowman sweaters and fluffy earmuffs, go in search of the perfect tree. Scrambling around the loft looking for our tired plastic version isn't nearly as heartwarming, and so this year we opted for the real thing, a poor decision that led to a minor bloodletting. I held up 4,327 trees before we were able to opt for the tree of choice. All right, it was more likely around a dozen, but I handled enough trees to end up with hands that were bleeding and a coat that smelled of pine for days afterwards. And then the tree grew at least a foot after I'd purchased it, and so in trying to manoeuvre what looked like a netting-encased corpse into the back of my car, I got repeatedly stabbed by those pesky pine needles, received splinters from the trunk, and then nearly slapped a cyclist on the back of the head on the way home because wayward branches protruded out of the windows. This elicited a number of expressions of praise and worship, or something like that, from yours truly. Bah, humbug. And then I had to do battle with the tree stand, which was designed by a crazed inventor who is on a crusade to tempt Christian leaders to swear. One is required to fill the wretched contraption with cold water and then hold the tree with one hand while simultaneously kneeling before it to twist ill-fitting bolts into the trunk. This resulted in a tilting tree reminiscent of the Leaning Tower of Pisa and a stand filled with pine needle soup, which of course spilled over onto the carpet. Oh, deep and abiding joy. And then came the annual ritual of the tree lights, an occasion that I not only fear, but occasionally dream about. Actually, they're nightmares and for very good reason. Our tree lights are the self-knotting variety. Even though we carefully pack them away when their job is done each year, someone breaks into our loft with the sole agenda of tying them up into insurmountable tangles. The chaotic green jumble of cable is finally untangled, and then we always discover that one of the bulbs doesn't work, and so we insert and remove bulbs, and that string of lights is still dark, nudging us to more potentially naughty muttering. But then, staggeringly, we place that useless string of lights back into its box, which we will retrieve again next year and repeat the same fun ritual. Untangle, insert bulbs, remove bulbs, mutter, replace in box. It's been said that one definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. I place the redundant lights back in their box, muttering to self that it will be different next year because they will work. Here is the news. They won't. But my tree wrestling was not the most stressful or embarrassing event of last Christmas. No, my biggest gaffe happened when I drove to the butchers to collect the turkey. It should have been a simple enough task, but not, of course, for me. Nothing ever is. I placed the big bird on the passenger's seat, began my drive home, and suddenly a warning light came on, accompanied by a shrill beeping noise. It was the seatbelt warning signal. The car has a built-in sensor in each seat and detects that a passenger is present, but that a seatbelt has not been fastened. My friend the turkey only weighed about 20 pounds, but nevertheless my car insisted I was carrying an unsecured passenger. 
despite the fact that this particular passenger was half-frozen and very dead and therefore would have been quite unaffected by an accident, the car warning system continued to protest loudly. I know. I could have simply pulled over and placed the turkey on the floor of the car, the simplest and most obvious solution. But I reached across, grabbed the seatbelt and strapped that turkey in. I believe I am the only man in the UK whose chauffeur drives seatbelt protected dead birds. And it's all because I didn't pause to think. Thoughtlessness. That's why I didn't measure the tree, wear protective gloves while putting the tree into the car, secure wayward branches or fill the stand with water after securing the tree. That's why I lobbed the defunct tree lights back into their box instead of into the bin. And that's why I clunk clicked a frozen bird, because I didn't pause enough, long enough, to think. In all of the baubles and the blur that is Christmas, we can so easily miss the point of it all because Dasher has become our name, borrowed from a reindeer. It's been said that on all gravestones there is one thing shared, whatever the specific details of the deceased, and that's the dash. John Smith, 9th of April 1903, dash, 6th of January 1983, 80 years or so, but there's still the dash. Sarah Giles, 7th of March 1960 to the 24th of May 1980, Sadly, just two decades, but there's still a dash. Life tends to be a dash, and never more so at Christmas. In our fervent hunt for the right pair of socks for Uncle Sid or slippers for Auntie Vera, we neglect to think about the fact that Christmas means wondrous international rescue by the God who refused to just watch us from a distance. Our world is not an abandoned planet spinning in lonely space. We are a visited people. Christ has come. So this year, let's give ourselves the luxurious gift of 10 minutes or so to ponder that wonderful truth and unpack it with gratitude. And just as Christmas came first to those on the margins because shepherding was a chosen occupation for rascals, so the message of peace and joy includes those who, through no fault of their own, have nothing under the tree and maybe no tree at all. Let's think and plan and give, lest Christmas becomes a love feast of self-indulgence. And let's think, too, about those who find the season quite unbearable, who are mugged by nostalgia mingled with despair as they look back and ache for better bygone days, when smiles and songs were shared with loved ones now departed and greatly missed. Let's notice and think hard about how we might take some joy their way. It can be done, and it might not take very much. To quote another song, immortalised by Judy Garland, when Christmas does come around, well then, have yourself a merry little Christmas. As Judy sang wistfully, from now on, our troubles will be out of sight. Out of sight indeed, because those tree lights still don't work. So as I sign off tonight, I pray that you'll have a happy, 
thoughtful, peaceful Christmas. And if you'd like to join me for a Christmas special next Sunday at 7.30pm, that's on Christmas Day, I'll be digging into some of the most familiar carols that we sing and unearthing some of the stories behind them. In the meantime, whatever the circumstances are that you're experiencing, I pray that as Christmas comes that you'll know his love and joy. God bless you in this Advent season, and I hope to see you next week. Lucas on Life.